Hi, this is Ben, and welcome to Ben's Week in Medical School, sharing knowledge about the human body and giving you glimpses into life in medical school. This podcast is a personal project for entertainment and is not professional medical advice. The views expressed here are my own and are not the views of my medical school. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is episode seven, and this past week was my 11th week of medical school. We have three weeks left of genetics, and then an exam, and another green week. Our green week aligns with the elections, so I hope to be a poll worker this year and try and help make sure people have an easy voting experience if they have to come into the polls instead of just using a mail-in ballot. I will start with a metabolism topic this week. One of the fascinating topics was a brief one. Uh, We know so much about what products are being made and consumed by each organ in the body. Way back in episode one, I talked about how the liver is a clearinghouse for gathering and processing nutrients. But how was all this discovered? So I want to talk about a technique called an arteriovenous study. And arteries are more or less what deliver blood to our organs, and veins are where the blood collects out of the organs on its way back to the heart. So the arteriovenous studies would sample some blood from the arteries before it enters, let's say, the liver, and then sample the blood from the veins that leave the liver. Then it's a matter of analyzing the two samples and seeing which chemicals are different. Uh, it's, it's a simple idea, and it is a great way to understand what uh, the function of what are essentially black boxes, our organs. So um, what's not so simple is the chemistry techniques that are used to evaluate the two samples. Um, That would be considerably more complicated than the basic principle of sampling the inputs and then sampling the outputs. And chances are involved, at least in a lot of the history of our organ study, um, using manual chemistry techniques to separate and stratify the components of the samples and then see if one compound is missing from uh, from the artery sample or the venous sample. And then you have a clue that the liver is either taking up that compound and storing it or converting it into a new form. So that's a sort of a vague history of medicine kind of topic that captured my imagination. And now onto a more applied item. Vitamin B3 is called niacin, and it's one of the things that is often fortified in flours and breads, um, partly because when you process grains, some of the niacin that would have been present if you ate the whole grain is going to be lost in that process. Um, The reason that we do this is that if we don't get enough niacin, then you can develop pellagra, which has four common symptoms. They're called the four Ds, diarrhea, dermatitis, which is skin inflammation, and dementia, and finally death. Well, it turns out that even if you have a diet without niacin, the human body can make a little bit of its own niacin, potentially enough to keep you from at least the last D of the four Ds, which is death. We can use tryptophan as a precursor to generate niacin. That's really cool because tryptophan is present in other places in our diet. We know that turkey has it, but also corn has it as well. Uh, Most corn. But there's a caveat here, which is 
um, the treatment that corn undergoes to make grits and also to make the masa for tortillas, it involves treating the corn with an alkali substance, um, I think lye, and it breaks down the tryptophan in corn. So before there was heavy supplementation of fortified grains, then it was common to see a higher risk of pellagra, this niacin deficiency in cultures where grits or tortillas were a major form of sustenance. So that's, it includes the American South and Latin America. Um, so since we now supplement these uh, niacin and riboflavin and folate, um, it's much more rare to find people with pellagra, but it's not unheard of. So I want to move on to genetics topic. Um, first, I wanted to talk about DNA and genes again. Um, to remind you what we talked about a little bit last week, the main job of DNA is to be a blueprint for all the things that need to get made in our cells. For instance, our pancreas needs to make insulin, which is a protein that tells our body that we are in a high glucose or a fed state. Fed meaning, you know, you just ate. Um, well, there is a gene that has the instructions to make insulin in all of our cells, but that instruction set mostly gets used in the pancreas, which is the main insulin-producing organ in our bodies. Uh, here's an interesting number to remember, though. Out of all the DNA in humans, only 1% actually has recipes for making proteins. Uh, so... What else is actually going on in, in our genome? Um, this 1% of our DNA that seems to actually do something, I decided to compare it to something on the macro scale that we have experience seeing and touching or at least can imagine, and that's like a one-page business letter. So I imagine a formal, a formal business letter that I could write to accept a new position at a company the first thing I would write down is the date across the top, then my own address, then my employer's address, then the subject of the letter, and then something like, Dear Human Resources Department. And then finally, about halfway down, um, I would get to the first sentence where I actually might start saying something that mattered in the letter, which is, thank you for the offer, I accept. Um, and that's not going to be a very long very long message because shortly after I'll have my signature, printed name, and that's it. So if I print out this letter on a sheet of 8.5 by 11 paper, how much space does the actual constant of my letter take up? So I measured that, and for this letter, maybe a couple sentences, three or four sentences, only 15% of it is actually um, something that I would consider to be the active part of the letter. The rest is kind of boilerplate and formatting and blank space. And so this 15%, it kind of gets us closer to the ballpark of what's happening with this 1% of the coding DNA in the genome. So I kind of think that the, that the formal letter is a fun metaphor to think about what is filling up our genome. Genes do have an address portion which dictates where the product should be sent. For example, insulin has a sequence in the DNA 
which causes it to be released from cells into the bloodstream instead of just staying inside of the cells where it was made. There are also sequences that can recruit different machinery to assist with the creation of that gene. For example, after it's produced in a raw form, insulin has some extra bits that need to be chopped off so that it can be fully active. And um, I can think that this might be like the attention field in a letter. Other codes within the 99% can cause the gene to be turned on and off or can specify whether the product will be made in relatively low numbers or maybe even 40 times faster and in greater numbers. Another fun fact that I wanted to mention about the DNA of humans is that 8% of our total genome is actually comprised of inactivated viral genes from retroviruses. Retroviruses like HIV um, and others that aren't deadly can insert their own genes into the DNA of infected cells. And usually when this happens, the infected cell just dies after making a bunch of copies of the virus. But over some millennia, viruses have infected um, sperm and egg cells in the human body, perhaps, and that viral, that viral DNA was passed on to future generations and never left the genome. So it's just another example how our DNA is kind of a living document and is not static. I have a few more topics about metabolism that were really interesting and I'd like to cover sometime in the future, but I don't think I'll have time this podcast. So this coming week is week 12 and I will be practicing my patient interviewing techniques and I think I'll be testing out of some of those, meaning I actually have to do it right and earn a good score. And I will also be meeting some of the community leaders that I've been matched to for a long-term service project. And then of course, I'll be having a bunch more genetics and metabolic disorders lectures. So I think it'll be a really interesting week and I'm looking forward to talking about it next week on the podcast. If you have any questions, please email me at brot at fastmail.com and have a great week.